Amadit Chakraborty and welcome to The Business. Coming up this week, cars, microfinance and the euro. As General Motors becomes the latest casualty of a global recession, we assess the worldwide impact on the once great automobile industry. Plus, we discuss living on $2 a day with our special guest Daryl Collins, an expert in poverty and development. And, as Europe prepares to go to the polls, we look at the economic problems across the Eurozone. This is The Business from The Guardian. Our panel this week is as bright and shiny as a 50 pence coin you found hidden down the back of the sofa. Larry Elliott's The Guardian's economics editor. You're currently joint third in our table of podites, Larry. Only third? Who's first and second? Well, be grateful for your podite, not a luddite. (laughs) Tim Webb is the industrial editor for The Observer. Tim, you've had to be particularly industrious this week. Yes, uh, and last week particularly, obviously, Vauxhall has uh, kept me busy, so um, that's going to be the case for some time, I think. Be grateful, Tim. And our special guest is the author and microfinance expert, Daryl Collins, from Bankable Frontier Associates. Pleasure to have you here, Daryl. Lovely to be here. We'll get on to the economic issues in Europe, Africa and India later on in the programme, but we'll kick off this week with news from America. What GM's bankruptcy means for you, factories closing, jobs lost, billions more in taxpayer dollars to keep the car maker running. We want to welcome our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the situation. Well, if you thought Susan Boyle's collapse was the biggest story of the week... What about the collapse of General Motors? Yes, the company that was the world's biggest car maker just 12 months ago now stands as the biggest industrial failure in US corporate history. GM filed for bankruptcy in a New York court at the start of the week, and the White House is poised to inject another $30 billion into the once mighty institution. Tim, how did we get here? Well, that's a good question. Depends how far you want to go back, really. Um... But just six months ago, people were not talking about bankruptcy for GM, were they? No, but GM has been in trouble for, for some time, certainly more than six months. People trace back the, the roots of GM's uh, uh, demise to failure of management as far back as the 90s, really, to adapt to changing uh, consumer demand for smaller vehicles, not being as, infic- as efficient as uh, uh, particularly the Japanese rivals like Toyota and Honda. And uh, the, the rise in the fuel price and the oil price, I should say, last summer, in fact, that really uh, hit home their um, vulnerability and their, their, their lack of, they, they weren't really making the cars that people wanted, the small cars. They're making the Hummers, the big Cadillacs, and that's just not what people wanted. So the writing's been on the wall for GM and for Chrysler for some time. But just coming forward to, to the actual crisis, when they first, when the Detroit Three first went to Washington asking for money, no one really thought that we'd get to the stage where GM filed for bankruptcy, where Chrysler filed for bankruptcy, where Obama had a 6% stake in what was once the world's biggest company. There surely is a big sort of structural problem there, over, overlay with a cyclic, big cyclical problem. The structural problem surely is that all these big three companies built cars in the 1990s, which were predicated on the back of a very low oil price. Oil mm. prices went down to below $10 a barrel by the end of the 1990s, so they built, you know, GM bought built Hummers and SUVs yeah. you know, coming out of its ears in the anticipation that that's what American consumers want. You know, the idea that you know, this is a company that got the market completely and utterly wrong. Mm. It's kind of an irony. The private sector is supposed to know what's going on in the market. So it, got, it was structurally in a very, very poor position for a high oil price over the last two or three years. And now the cyclical downturn has really, really hit it. There's a glut of cars in the, in the global economy and the, weak, the weakest companies are, gonna, are being picked off and GM is one of those. Well, let's hear from an American consumer. I mean, 
There's some talk now about whether we'll ever get back to those days where people want to go out and buy SUVs, whether they want to buy American cars in the same kind of volumes as we used to see in the 70s and 80s. What do you think, Daryl? Well, you know, it, this brings to mind, um, you know, uh, back in the 1980s, you could almost see the writing on the wall because there was a lot of uh, discussion about buy American you know, you needed to buy a, a Ford or a Chevy. And uh, the discussion was about which was the best pickup truck and where to put our NRA sticker, actually, the National Rifle <laughs> Association. So there's a certain sector of, of, of America, I think, that would love to see those days come back again. But to be honest, I think the rest of us were sort of humming a little tune and going out and shopping for Toyotas. So I, I'm not entirely sure that we could really go back to the, to the 80s and necessarily see that type of demand again. And what do the NRA and the John Burt Society and all those people who are proudly American, what do they make of having a, a car company that's now 6% owned by, by the government? Well, you know, I, not very American, I, I'm, I'm not sure because I'm from Boston. I don't really run into, you know... <laughs> We're a, rather, we're a rather Prius driving Not too many lot, NRI to people in Boston, are <laughs> It's not, not a big chapter over there. And... They're, they're, they're out there, but we, we, you know, they're, they're, they're an oddity on the road and, you know, spot the NRA sticker. <laughs> but to be honest, you know, it's, it's just a bummer of a time to be a conservative in America at the moment. And this just sort of puts the, the, the icing on the cake, I imagine, um, that on top of all these things going on with the Obama government and all the different changes that he's making on top of everything, you have GM collapsing. It's just... It's very disappointing to certain sectors. Well, it's interesting. I don't know your perspective as an American, what, what you think the, uh, the effect of if GM had been allowed to, to fail, as some people are suggesting that Obama should have allowed it to fail rather than put in $60 billion of taxpayers' money. And American commentators talk about what impact that would have on consumer sentiment, that if GM went under this iconic uh, company that used to be, until recently, America's largest, if that failed, would we have another... Sort of Lehman, almost a Lehman Brothers moment when Lehman's was allowed to fail. Everyone said, you know, the weakest banks should be allowed to go to the wall. But as soon as Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, then... Um, that's, that's the free market theory, isn't it? I mean, that's mm. the whole sort of Schumpeterian theory that you should just allow companies to, to, to mm. collapse and it's creative destruction. But politically, there's no way that Obama could have not bailed out GM, having bailed out a large chunk of Wall Street mm. last, last autumn. Mm-hmm. You know, just the politics of it. He's relied on, you know, union votes and, and working class votes to be elected. And the idea that he would bail out, mm. um, you know, all these, all these Wall Street bankers and then turn his back on blue-collar America, that is just for the yeah. birds. That's just not going to happen in these circumstances, and nor should it, in my right. view. There's, there's quite a good chance that with some state money and some state direction, you know, they could slim this company down, they could improve the product range and turn it around and save a lot of jobs and, and, and actually make it a good company again. So I'm, I, I think it would have been a big mistake to have just allowed this company to have, to have gone bust with all the social mm. and economic costs that would have brought with it. OK, but contrast what Larry's just said there about how the Americans had to step in. Contrast that with what's happened to GM Europe. Here we've had Peter Manson talking about industrial activism and yet the decisions that have been made about Opal, about Vauxhall, they've all been made out of Berlin, haven't they? Yeah, and just to kind of pick up on Larry, I think this whole process is about managing decline. Yeah, I, I think it's right that uh, Obama's rescued GM, and and uh, allowing that to fail would have been, you know, disastrous short-term social and potentially economic consequences. And in Europe, I think it's interesting we're seeing the different uh, strategies and approaches that, that different European governments are playing. German, the German government, where Opel, which is the largest part of GM Europe, with half of GM Europe's fifty thousand employees. 
they, the German government there are really offering a lot more financial support than anyone else. In fact, the UK government hasn't offered any financial support, not tangible anyway. Lord Manderson has been on the airwaves uh, insisting that uh, he stands ready to, to help. And I'm sure he's genuine in, in his comments. But the UK, we, having bailed out the banks, we just don't have much money left, I think, to, to, to offer to uh, Vauxhall to, to provide soft loans to the future GM Europe, the, the, the kind of restructured, slimmed-down GM Europe, which could uh, spell bad news for uh, Vauxhall and its 5,500 workers in the UK. OK, we'll part that there. You can read plenty more comment and analysis on this at guardian.co.uk slash business. Now, when we think about the 2.7 billion people on the planet who live on $2 a day or less, it's often in cliches. They live hand-to-mouth, we imagine, and they can never plan further ahead than their next meal. Well, our special guest, Daryl Collins, has co-authored a book called Portfolios of the Poor, which explodes the myths. She finds that those living below the poverty line are often highly financially sophisticated. They save, they borrow, they even plan for their retirement. Daryl, what I like about this book is it contrasts the generalities with the specifics. You've actually gone out to South Africa, to Bangladesh, to India and interviewed these people about how they spend their money and how they plan their finances what are the sorts of points of contradiction between our cliches and the specifics of what actually happens well I mean, there are a few things first of all i mean you've you've alluded to one um, most importantly we we when we think about two dollars a day we think my goodness how does that ever stretch uh far enough for people to be able to save from two dollars a day let alone you know get what they need in terms of expenditure but rather than necessarily thinking that well okay, people who don't have much money, who are the poor, can't save and they can't use financial instruments, it's actually upside down. People who are poor need financial instruments more than anyone else. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, $2 a day doesn't come $2 every day. It gets spread out. It gets spread out over seasons. You know, if we think of farmers who get all of their cash crops in one time during the year and they have to have big expenditures at a complete opposite end of the year. They need financial instruments to smooth that income. But same with someone who's, say, an entrepreneur and gets a small sort of daily income and they need to buy stock the next day. If they don't sell a certain amount, then they're not able to, to buy stock the next day. So they have to borrow or they need to tap into their savings. So we actually found that people were using, on average, about 10 or 11 financial instruments per household. And these financial instruments were just a little bit different sometimes than how we might think. So we counted things like stashing your money under the mattress. We counted things like money guards, where you, if you get a big clump of money, you know, which is unusual, it's hard to get a, a usefully large lump sum, you hand it over to someone and you say, here, don't let me spend this. And, and you pay them that. a fee to do so. Sometimes you pay a fee, sometimes it's, it's interest-free. And that's what we call money guarding. Um, sometimes you have these uh, savings clubs where you contribute very small amounts of money on a monthly or a weekly or daily basis, and then you take home that money in turn, depending on whose turn it is. You could have something like a, a, a what we call a ROSCA, a revolving credit association, where let's say 10 of us are around the table, we each put in a dollar, and then one person takes that $10 away. The next day we come back, we each put in a dollar, another person takes $10 away. Now, what you're describing there is quite a complex uh, mm-hmm. system of financial transactions. Yes. But we've just gone through a financial crisis and Larry Elliott spent 
months, past couple of years, writing about nothing but the banking crisis. Does, does any of that have any kind of impact on the people you're describing? Well, you know, uh, I've just been in South Africa and there's there's an impact on the entire population through maybe slightly higher interest rates, you know, through weakening currencies or what have you. But when you get down to people at this level, I find that there really isn't impact, there isn't a change in the interest rates that they pay. So the people that we were speaking about to in the book uh, would be paying about 30% per month on interest on a just a money lender loan. And that was very standard across the country in South Africa. And I don't know, I don't think it would change um, compared to what, what's been happening in the global economy are, at all. Are there any formal banks um, involved in the in the South African economy or the Bangladeshi economy? Because one of the things about actually <coughs> in the UK is there's quite a lot of talk about mm-hmm. the, the big banks withdrawing from poor areas. I mean, right. A lot of poor people in the UK go to money lenders or they have sort of door-to-door official lenders who go around and charge them very high rates of interest, much higher rates of interest than the than the banks would. But the banks have essentially sort of left these areas. Um, and I just wonder, is, is there a sort of formal banking sector in a, in a country like Bangladesh or is it very much an informal um, village by village or household by household arrangement that they do it their own way? There's formal banks in, in South Africa, Bangladesh, and India. Um, certainly in the South African sample, which is the sample that I covered, uh, many people would have a formal bank account, but would also have these informal savings instruments. Which do they rely on more? Well, you know what? In order to save, they're informal systems. Um, in order to save? In order to How save. How does that work? Well, you know the reason why? It's, it's, it's a commitment device for these households. So in other words, if you're in a savings club... Uh, you really want to make that payment into the club. Otherwise, you're letting your friends down. And so you have this commitment device that makes you pay into that club. So let me give you an example. There's a woman named Numsa who lives in the rural areas of South Africa. And she supports four grandchildren, two of which recently came to her because her daughter died of AIDS. She supports those four children on a government old age grant of $115 a month. Now, you would imagine out of $115 a month, she probably wouldn't save very much. But on the contrary, she saved about $40 every, every month. So that's an enormous savings rate. The way that she did it was belonging to two savings clubs. Now, she had a bank account. She actually received the government grant through the bank account. But she just found that that commitment device, that social savings, made her put the money aside every month when if, if we're from a western point of view is either donors or people who work on ngos yeah. um what can they learn from reading your book what are the sort of three lessons that you think they, they might carry away from reading your book well the big thing is that the products that need to be developed really need to fall into sort of three different categories well first of all the poor really do need good transactions they need a good basic transactional account The second, it needs to be convenient, and it needs to be reliable, and it needs to be flexible. The second is that they really do need ways of building up savings. Um, The poor can save. They can save in big chunks out of their monthly income, but they need a reliable place to put those savings. And then the last is really that there needs to be more all-purpose loans. I mean, this idea of microfinance is based upon the notion of lending for building up microenterprise and mostly lending to women. But we really need to break out of that very, very narrow focus. The poor need loans all the time, and they need loans for a very wide variety of reasons, and they need loans on flexible terms. 
Okay, thank you very much for that. We've put all the details for Daryl's book on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Finally this week. Chut It's tremendo. Il mio dio. Nothing but the highbrow on this podcast. Yep, those are just some of the exclamations coming from our continental cousins as they gear up for this week's European elections. We'll get the thoughts of the panel about this in a sec, but first, let's take a quick tour around some of the main European hubs to see the state of economic play. I'm Angelique Rosafis, The Guardian's Paris correspondent. Financial crisis in France hit much later than everywhere else. The problem is it's going to take longer for France to get out of the recession that it's in. Now, the banks in France weren't hit as badly as Britain or Ireland, for example. But the main problem is something that's been worrying France for many years, and that's unemployment. Now, unemployment is now rising at the fastest rate in over a decade. And the real fear is industry and factories taking out their jobs here and moving them to cheaper places in Eastern Europe, for example. The reason we've seen people kidnapping their bosses and holding them hostage in recent months is because they're trying to stop workers being laid off, basically, mass layoffs as factories close. Now, this, therefore, has become a focus of the European elections for Nicolas Sarkozy. He is promising that French industry is going to be looked after, that Europe is going to protect industry and not let it move to cheaper places in the world. This is Giles Tremlett in Madrid. The specific economic problems in Spain as it goes into the European elections are obviously to do with the recession, but uh, very precisely in Spain, it's a 17% unemployment rate, by far Europe's highest unemployment rate, and the predictions say that it will go to 20% next year. So that's one in five Spaniards will be without a job next year. Spain has also uh, just seen a huge property bubble explode and that has uh, expelled a huge number of people onto the dole queues. The question now is how to get those people back into work. Spain has a very unqualified and undereducated workforce. Uh, One in three people uh, leave school without any qualifications. Uh, Surprisingly though this doesn't seem to be hurting Mr Zapatero too badly in political terms. The latest poll puts him level pegging Uh, with the Conservative opposition. Um, We'll see whether that poll was right uh, when Spaniards go to vote on June the 7th. I'm Kate Connolly in Berlin, where the biggest political issue is the state of the country's once much-envied manufacturing and auto industries, which have taken a severe battering in the economic crisis. Growth in Europe's largest economy has shrunk by a huge 3.8% in the first quarter. Unemployment is expected to rise to over 10%. Epitomising the crisis is the beleaguered carmaker Opel. The attempts by Angela Merkel's government to rescue it four months ahead of a national election has sparked a heated political row. Viewing the 1,100 companies also queuing up for state aid, critics say it would be better for the long-term stability of Germany to let Opel file for bankruptcy rather than to bail it out with taxpayers' money and appear, for the sake of short-term political gain, to be saving thousands of jobs. Larry, you recently come back from Dublin. We'll start with you. The old joke about Ireland doing the rounds a few months ago was that Ireland, the only difference between Ireland and Iceland was one letter in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, They're very, very cross about that. They really, they have a complete sense of humour failure about that joke. They really don't like it. How bad is it now? How bad is the economy? I think it's probably like here, hit 
probably going to hit rock bottom over the next few months. Um, but they are seeing something like an 8 9% fall in GDP this year, which is a, a stonking great fall. And unemployment's probably going to go up to something like 17% by the end of next year, which is one in six of the population. So this is a serious, I mean, that's borderline, borderline depression territory, I'd have said. Um, and they've got real um, real deflation, not just in headline inflation, but in core. Core inflation has also gone negative, the only country in the Eurozone where it is negative. So they're an outlier for the whole European Monetary Union project, really. I mean, they really are. They're the, they're the worst. They're the worst in the worst condition of any of the, of the, uh, of the EMU countries. Now, when the Irish crisis broke uh, and they were launching all these austerity measures and all the rest of it, um, the Conservatives over here were very keen to play up the similarities between the UK and Ireland. Were we really that similar? Well, we're not in the euro, which is both a strength and weakness for them. I mean, the, the, the weakness is that they weren't able to take the, the sort of right monetary policy decisions that they needed to do to kill off the property boom in the early part of this decade. And that they re- realised, <clears throat> in retrospect, what they should have done was use fiscal policy more aggressively. It was the only tool they had. At that point, they were running a budget surplus. So to run an even bigger bu- budget surplus was quite tricky for them. So you did lose, you lost monetary control and monetary policy. So, But the strength was that they, they were inside the Eurozone. They got the full backing of the ECB for their banking system. That's why they see themselves as not like Iceland, in that their banks... They could all hang together. They could all, they could all hang together. And that, so Britain is not like, not like Ireland. It, it has strength in that we have our own monetary autonomy but we don't have the strength of the European Central Bank behind our banking system. And Tim, one of the cruel ironies of this recession is that it's actually in the sectors and the countries dominated by the sectors that you write about, the industrials and manufacturing, that have felt the recession most sharply, fastest. So it's Japan and Germany that have really gone headfirst into recession. Um, you know, that doesn't seem very fair somehow. Well, I'm not an economics expert, obviously. That Larry, Larry's your man for that. But it, the UK doesn't seem to be doing too well either. So, yes, it may seem unfair, although I do take exception to this idea that manufacturing represents a real economy. I definitely, you know, there's also this kind of moral, moral um, superiority that people ascribe to manufacturing, and in a way that it's better than a service service economy. Clearly, the banking uh, sector was fundamentally flawed. And, you know, you, there's certainly something dubious about people being paid vast amounts of money by effectively pushing bits of money and commodities and bits of paper and financial instruments all around the world. And they're not actually contributing anything to the economy or making anything. But this idea that um, uh, making cars is better than, I don't know, service sector or, or other aspects, you know, that's kind of morally superior represents a real economy, whereas other things implying somehow that other things fake. aren't real... I, I, I'm a bit, I, I'm not sure if I'm convinced by that. So when you hear all this talk about how what we need to do is rebalance the economy away from finance and towards manufacturing and we need well, we a Green New Deal or, or whatever, do you actually think, no, well, let's... No, we definitely, and I don't, don't want to misunderstand, we definitely need to rebalance the economy, definitely. We definitely need a Green New Deal. We need to reduce our carbon emissions. You were just we saying de- that because you're intimidated by Larry. That's all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was waiting. I didn't want to look at Larry because he might attack that, that me. That £10 I slipped him was well spent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But no, we definitely need to rebalance the economy. Clearly, we're overly exposed to the financial sector, which isn't a good thing at the moment and won't be for some time. But what I was trying to get down to the point is this idea that this, the real economy and, and manufacturing represents a real economy. But if you, if you work in a, a restaurant or you work in a, you know, the, or, or do some other job that's not banking, but it's not making cars either, that somehow that's not the real economy. And I just, I don't know, I just think that, doesn't do a great service to those people who are employed in those industries, service sectors. Daryl, 
Do the kind of debates that we were having around this table and the, the sort of quite representative of the kind of debates we're having in the UK, are they, are they similar to the kind of debates you're having in America? Yes, I must admit that there is a very similar tone to the same type of debates. Um, this It strikes me that, you know, we're having so many discussions about government involvement in, in industry and it's really getting back to an emphasis on Main Street rather than rather than Wall Street these days. When we talk about government action, we're talking about actual industrial policy. We're not talking about tinkering around with monetary policy and, and what have you. So it's, it's, it has very much the same type of, type of tone. Okay, well, you can follow the results and ramifications of this week's European elections and our outlook for the European economy at guardian.co.uk. Right, time for me to wrap this up. If you want to have your say on any of our topics, post your comments on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. My thanks to the panel, Larry Elliott and Tim Webb from downstairs, and Daryl Collins, who's had to walk a little further. Daryl's book, Portfolios for the Poor, is published by Princeton University Press and is out now. More details on the blog. All that remains to be said is that our producer is Ben Green, I'm Adit Chakraborty, and that was the business. (laughs) 